Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. While you're turning, now that he's not with us, I think I'll take a minute and share a little bit about Brother Don, who's been with us the last couple of weeks. This is uh, Julie's father, Steve's father-in-law. Um, and uh, I don't know uh, if you've had the chance much to talk uh, to Brother Don uh, in the past. If you haven't, it is your loss. Um, Don is a, a wonderful man. And uh, I have a bit of a soft spot um, for men who have served the Lord uh, faithfully for many, many, many years until they can't possibly serve the Lord in the way that they did serve the Lord all of their lifetime. And Don is one of those guys. Don and his wife Helen, who has already gone on to be with the Lord, have served as missionaries overseas. They've served as missionaries locally in churches across the country. Uh, our church supported them all throughout their missionary uh, years. Once, once you know, Steve and Julie uh, came together, and uh, we became aware of the need. Um, Helen died just within the last year, Steve, and uh, and Don is not not doing well physically. There are a lot of problems, uh, but let me tell you something, uh, Don. When you talk to him is a man who would today be in a pulpit preaching if he was physically capable of doing it. Not because he wants to have a big church. I don't know that he ever did. Um, not because he wants you know fame or recognition or he's seeking a big career. But he cares deeply for people and he cares deeply for Jesus and he just wants to see people follow Jesus. And the last two weeks, uh, I have stopped to talk with Don, as I try to do each time uh, after the service, just because I wanted to hear what he would say. And uh, um, it takes a little patience, because he'll lose his train of thought as he's going along, um, but he will stick with it, and he'll continue on until he's completed his thought, and it's, it's tough. It's not, it's not easy to stay with, with it, but if you do, he is a real blessing to talk to, and I just want to take a minute and share uh, the, the ways the last two weeks he was a blessing to me. Two weeks ago, when I preached um, and Don was here, we met in the middle aisle and we talked just briefly about the passing of Helen and Don and how he was doing. And uh, Don is still uh, in church each week and trying to encourage his local pastor uh, in Nashville, where, where he's living right now, with uh, one of his daughters. And uh, the, the pastor continues to encourage Don. Don? Just memorize one message. And if you keep working, you just memorize one message. We'll get you in front of a, a Bible study or, or a group and you can just do that one message. So he's trying. Don is just trying to memorize one message so he can, excuse me, this might be tough emotionally, so he can stand up and preach again. While he's sharing that with me, uh, he shared just testimony after testimony of the various times in his life when... He just shared Jesus with random people. Uh, one was when he was over there in England. And England is a very secular place uh, today, but it was once a very, uh, very religious, very Christian nation. And uh, there were graveyards outside of, of, uh, of many of the churches in England there are today. And he, he was telling me how he would go through walks through these graveyards and he would look at the various stones and he would, uh, you know, think about the headstones and the, and the dates and the sayings that were inscribed on various headstones. And he said he saw a man there once and they were looking at a stone and uh, it, it, it uh, made a comment about how the man uh, uh, was with God today. And, you know, Don started talking to this guy and and just trying to listen to the man. And he said, now do you know why that is on that stone? And the man said, well, I know that, that he was a Christian. He said, yeah. And he said, what's going to be on your headstone someday? And he just took the minute 
took the time to share about the love of Jesus to this to this person who ended up praying to trust Christ and started going to their church. And that was Don's experience with the man. He just uh, said, you know, you can have the same hope and security that that man has, but but only through Jesus, or else you're not. And and that was Don. That 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 is Don today. You do not have to talk to him very long uh, to get that from Don. And then last week when we met here up front. He told me that he was getting ready because Thanksgiving he was going to go back to Nashville over the holiday. I assume, Steve, you, you had uh, Thanksgiving in Nashville and that's how Don got back. Your family did. And uh, he told me, you know, uh, I'm headed back to Nashville, but, you know, thank you for your preaching. It's been a blessing to me. And he was very kind and, and gracious. Uh, and he always came up to me after the service with a few notes about uh, what I had preached on. Not criticisms, which Don would be in a place to do. Not even suggestions, but just encouragements. Hey, when you said this this morning, when you it, this was that was really encouraging to me, and you know that's a guy who's been a pastor or preacher for a long time to come up and have that kind of kindness to another pastor. But I, I, uh, you know, I always thanked him, and and you know he said he was going back to Nashville, and uh, you know I looked at him, Don, and all of his frailty, and. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, I, I don't know when I'll see you again, Don. You know, and he said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not getting younger. And uh, we both teared up just a little bit. But he said, I don't know when I'll see you, but I know where I'll see you again. <laughs> and uh, and then I started crying like I'm, I'm doing now. And uh, but, but I kept it a little bit better under control when Don was there. But it just strikes me that. There are not too many people who get to that age of their life who have faithfully served the Lord all the way through. Just all the way through. And I have a soft spot for people like that. Because most people, when they're done raising their kids, when their careers get to a certain point, when there's some drama in and among a church, or most people just kind of start to check out. And I pray by God's grace that their faith remains, but, but most people don't stay faithful all the way to the end with the same zeal and passion that they had at the beginning. But Don has, and I'm, I'm blessed to know uh, many others who have, men and women, who stay faithful all the way to the end. And there, at the end, is not this great, fear or dread of what's going to happen or what about my family or what about these people or how am I going to do this. They are not afraid at all um, because for the Christian there is no fear of defeat and death. There is no fear of it. It is, it is uh, a victory that Jesus has already won. It is not something to be afraid of. And it strikes me, you know, I have children who who get afraid sometimes of all different kinds of things. A fear of failure, a fear of losing this, a fear of what would happen if, if they were moved here or if this fell apart in their life. And that's normal for children, it's normal for adults. But it really brings home the truth that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And when we feel fear, we have to deal with it appropriately. By faith in God. And this morning, even God's working in my heart, teaching Sunday school this morning over there. As we learn about Saul and his early, the early chapters in 1 Samuel, Saul being a king. And they, the Philistines came upon him. And uh, they had this big Philistine army assembled. And Saul, this is his first go out and fight the Philistines moment as this new king of Israel. And Saul's got, you know, a couple thousand people with him for this battle, whatever it is. But then they start to run away and deteriorate. The, the army gets afraid. They start to kind of dissipate. And Samuel had told Saul, you know, I'll be there in seven days and we'll offer sacrifices to God and he will help. But on the seventh day, the seventh morning, Samuel wasn't there and Saul starts to panic. Because he sees people leaving. He's afraid I'm going to lose my whole army if we don't get this show on the road. And so Saul takes up the priestly role and he, he offers sacrifices to God. And it says, as soon as he's done offering the sacrifices, here comes Samuel. And Samuel in that chapter says, what have you done? What have you done? Disobeying and dishonoring God by offering these sacrifices. And Saul said, well, I was afraid. You know, these people were upon me. And, and you know, it was a life and death situation, not just for me, but for all the troops. And, and you weren't here, so I offered the sacrifices to God. 
because I was afraid. And, and you know what Samuel says to him? He, he says, Saul, you are not a man after God's own heart. And because of that, God has rejected you from being king. Because you are not a man after God's own heart. And, and it's, you know, we think of the rejection, uh, you know, a couple chapters later. But right then and there, Saul tells him in that, or Samuel tells Saul in that moment, because of this, your kingdom shall not be a forever kingdom. But God will choose a man after his own heart to be king. Tells him right then and there. And we know who that man that God chooses is. It's David and it leads to Jesus. Two weeks ago we connected uh, uh, Jesus to the line of David as we're going through the Advent. But think about David in contrast to Saul. Are we to think that David never experienced any emotion of fear? What about when David was a shepherd boy out there with a, you know, a, a musical instrument watching over sheep, singing, composing hymns to God, singing hymns to God, and a lion shows up. Are we to think that David had no fear? I mean, maybe he was inhuman. Maybe he experienced no fear. But I don't think that's very realistic. But instead, David deals with this fear with faith. And he goes after the lion. He goes after the bear. He goes after the animals that would take out uh, the sheep that he'd been entrusted to. And the motivation for that is, well, this is who I am and God is my God and he's not afraid. And he uses that as grounds to explain later on to King Saul why he should be allowed to go fight Goliath. <laughs> because Goliath and all of his, you know, bluster was no more terrifying than a bear or a lion or a mountain lion or whatever. He's no more terrifying than he. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. David was God's man and God was David's God. And this was God's enemy. And David could stand in faith against God's enemy. And even if David dies, we go on to read in the Psalms, the Psalms of David, David's faith, you will not abandon my life to Sheol. Right? Death is not a defeat for David. Not if God is on his side. You know, that is a man after God's own heart. That's a woman after God's own heart. That's a person who gets to that place where fear is a mere obstacle, is a mere obstacle to be stepped over. Because not even death itself is a threat. Fear is overcome with victory. And that victory is purchased for us in the coming of Jesus. And that's where we are now in the Advent series that we're in. We saw Jesus in the book in the Old Testament. That was the first week. Then we saw... Last week, the birth of Jesus. We read from Luke chapter 2, the coming of Jesus. And now, this morning, we're going to be on the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus this third week. Now, we could have gone to any number of passages to read the message of Jesus, any number of passages in the four Gospels. But I've settled on this one here in John 4. Now, in John 4, Jesus has been baptized he has started his ministry and he has preached in and among the Jews. We know this because you might remember John 3. Remember a famous verse from John 3? What? John 3, 16? The context of John 3 is Jesus gets, gets approached in the middle of the night by a man named Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is a Pharisee of the Jews. So Jesus had been preaching in and amongst the Jews and in and amongst Israel and he'd drawn attention by his preaching and his works. And now Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus in John 3 by night to ask him questions. And Jesus answers those questions and it leads to the great treatise of, of John 3 where it says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved, you know. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men love darkness because their deeds were evil. This is, this is the great treatise of John 3 explaining this to a Pharisee, right. And then we get John 4 and we read in verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, 
though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he leaves in and amongst the Jews, who the Messiah was promised to, and he heads out to Galilee to the country reasons, but he says, for whatever reason, some have read deep theological significance into it, others have read necessity because it was the shortest route that he must go through Samaria. And so here he's going through Samaria. Now Samaria was a mix of Gentile and Jewish people. A long bloodline mix. You might remember that we talked about two weeks ago how at one point in the Old Testament, after Saul, after David, after Solomon, the two, uh, there had been two kingdoms of Israel. There had been a civil split between them, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Now in the northern kingdom, they began practicing pagan idolatry blended with the original Pentateuch, the original books of the Bible, almost right away. So they're doing very Israel worship things, but they're doing them in pagan ways to, to, uh, to uh, golden calves and with false priests. They're, they're doing this in the northern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom set up as their capital, Samaria. City of Samaria. This is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And Samaria, once it's conquered by the Assyrians, becomes this blend of, of people who have been uh, exported by the Assyrian people who took over the region, um, and this blend of Jews who stayed or who were forced to remain. And they intermarry, and you end up with a lot of Jews who are not fully Jews, and their, their, their idolatry is mixed with the idolatry of the northern kingdom of Israel and this new pagan idolatry. And so the the Jews of the southern kingdom, the Jews who remain faithful to the prophets of God, they despise the Samaritans. They despise them. For many reasons. I mean, they, they, it had been the false capital of the northern kingdom as opposed to the promised Jerusalem. It had been a place of idolatry almost, immediate, almost immediately. It was an unclean place where Jews and Gentiles had mixed in violation of God's law and their worship had mixed just as God had said it would when that happened. The Jews hated Samaria. They did not want to go there. They did not want to be there. They looked at the Samaritans, if possible, potentially as less than Gentiles. I mean, they were, if, if a Gentile person was bad because they did not have the light of God, a Samaritan person might be worse because they had this pagan, idolatrous blend of the one true God. It was a bad situation. And that's where Jesus says he's going to go. Now, to this point, Jesus' message, if you were to read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his message to Israel has been a fairly recognizable one for us. It's been a message about repentance, turning away from sin. Um, Jesus' message about repentance is a message driven at approaching Israel who thought that they could be righteous if they just kept laws. And he's been driving home this message to them, no, you are still in need of repentance because even though you're keeping the letter of these rules in your heart, sin is present. And we get these, you know, these lines like you've heard, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you whoever's angry with his brother unjustly has already murdered him in his heart. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's a message of repentance, but it's a message that goes beyond the mere external law keeping and looks inside at the person. Now you know what that's like, don't you? You know what it's like to maybe control your tongue or control your actions, but inside have nothing but sin dominating your thoughts and feelings. Whether it's bitterness, whether it's selfishness, whether it's anger, whether it's pride. And you control it on the outside. You're keeping the letter of some law that you shouldn't yell at your wife or you shouldn't yell at your husband or you shouldn't do this to your kids, right? But inside, there is sin present. And that is what Jesus is preaching at. That is what John, before Jesus, is preaching at. You remember the message of John? And he says, John, what should we do? The people ask John, what should we do to be righteous? And he gives them these rules like, you know, uh, you should give to the one who needs an extra cloak. And you should, he's dealing not merely with keeping the letter of the law. You know, you soldiers shouldn't take more than you should take. You know, he's not just the letter of the law, but he's dealing with the internal nature of the person. What we might call the character of the man or the woman. And if we're honest, our character is marred by sin. And this is how Jesus attacks for lack of a better word, Israel. He attacks them at the character of their false righteousness. There's that whole thing you've heard, thou shalt not commit adultery, but whoever lusts after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery. You say, what? I'm an adulterer just because of what's happening internally? Yes. That's the message of the Lord. Yes. 
You're not righteous if that's inside. Can't you say, how could you be righteous if that's what's in your heart and your head? How can you say I'm righteous if that's there? There's the, you've heard you should love your neighbor, but I tell you, love your enemy. Right? It's all an internal call. We would call it a call to true Christian character. A call to true repentance. A repentance of the heart, not merely an external control over our actions. And Jesus, and he's hammering away at this. And his message of repentance is paired all throughout Matthew 5, 6, and 7 with the message of the kingdom. The kingdom that's coming. And you, you'll remember phrases of that too, right? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and, and, and rust can corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is what's, is what's on the, the focus. So it's quit worrying about the external. Here, your Father in heaven knows what you need. He'll supply all your needs. It's the kingdom of heaven that should be your concern. Um, this is the message to Israel. And now he goes to Samaria and he will encounter a woman there and many people there who are not Israelites. So they're not the people that he does not meet them with the same message. He meets them as a people who are in need of light in darkness. He meets them very differently. And it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a contrast to the Jesus that we see preaching to the crowds in Israel, and yet it's it's so similar to the Jesus that we see dealing with sinners one on one. You can read this encounter in John four and see Jesus slowly working through things with Nicodemus in the middle of the night in John three. I mean, here's a Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night in John three, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him or doesn't he doesn't chew him out. He doesn't give him a heart. He's very patiently listening to this cowardly Pharisee who doesn't even have the guts to go visit Jesus in broad daylight. But that's Jesus. This is the Jesus, the Jesus who's who's ready to go and visit Zacchaeus, <laughs> the tax collector. You know, this is a Jesus who's very patient with Peter and all of the dumb and foolish things that he says. And th This is a Jesus who is compassionate and who's loving and who's gracious and who's kind individually while preaching all the hard truth of the gospel to the crowds and to the people. Now here it says he's got to go through Samaria. Now we see uh, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. You can still visit the site today, or at least we believe it's the site. We have as much reason to think it's the site as any other historical site. It seems to have been well recorded and maintained over the years. It's there. Many people have built like uh, uh, churches or, or synagogues or areas around it, but they've all been ruined in conflict over the years. Today there's a half-ruined structure around Jacob's well today, but you could still go there and see the well. And it says, so he goes to this place. Jacob's well was there, a very well-known place. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the sixth hour is about the middle of the day. Okay, uh, again, the Jewish day starting, what is it, 6 a.m., Steve? Is that right? 6, 9, somewhere around there in the sixth hour. Middle of the day. He's sitting there in the heat of the day, and he's tired. He's been traveling. Well, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, she doesn't engage the Lord. She just shows up to do her task. Um, now, I think it's been rightly taught through the years that the kind of person who would visit the well in the middle of the day to draw water was the outcast. The people who were in good favor in the community would go in groups in the morning, in the cool of the day, perhaps in the evening, in the cool of the evening, to do this chore. Everybody needed to draw water every day. Just like you and I are going to drink some water in some form today. Mine might be in diet Pepsi form, but I'll drink, I'll drink some water today. Came from a well eventually. I don't know where, you know, how far back. But everybody needs water and every day this was a task. A physical exertion. Especially in the arid climate outside the Judean region where water was precious. 
And here's this woman in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, coming at a point when she was unlikely to encounter everyone else. No one went to draw their water. You drew it when it was cool and you kept it in a cool place. You didn't go draw water in the heat of the day. And Jesus is there by the well. And Jesus speaks to her. Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now here is Jesus pursuing an outsider. I don't know if you've ever felt like an outsider. Jesus has a habit of this. He could be found over and over again throughout the Gospels, pursuing those on the outside, pursuing those who the rest of society is uninterested in. One of the largest criticisms that he was faced with in and among the Jews is that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He would be invited to these wealthy people's homes, these rulers, these Pharisees' homes, and he would sit down at the table and he would have something critical to say about them. Or he might stop and talk to the servant person. Or he might say something rebuking about uh, their being outside the kingdom or being blind or not understanding their need for a physician. But to those who are on the outside, he was always gentle, kind. Even when he said something harsh like he would to a Gentile woman seeking healing for her daughter, it ends in graciousness and kindness. On the one hand, in John chapter 3, you see an Orthodox Jewish man of high reputation and high esteem coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, Nicodemus. And in John chapter 4, you see Jesus going to a woman, a Samaritan, an adulteress who no one in the, her own community was in good fellowship with. And he says, give me a drink. The woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She understood the, the racial conflict. She understood the religious conflict. It was unclean to have this kind of interaction. In fact, Jesus would probably have ruffled some feathers just in sending his disciples into the village to buy food. There was probably some dialogue there that we're not privy to in the text. And this woman says, you want me to handle your utensils and to draw water and give it to you? We don't have, Jews don't have any dealings with us. Well, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. My goodness. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you. Do you see, do you see what Jesus is saying there? The gift of God is quantifiable in a person. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who you're speaking to. This should be a very convicting thing for us. If you know Jesus and if you know the gospel, this should be a very convicting thing for us. Um, turn over to John 1. And uh, we know, if you just want to glance through the verse 1 there, we know this verse, we read this two weeks ago, we've read it many times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We, this is familiar to us, right? Flip ahead and look at verse 9, John 1. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And here, Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me for a drink, 
and He would have given you living water. It's interesting how this is positioned for us, isn't it? What is the obstacle to people coming to Jesus? They don't know Him. That's the obstacle. They don't know Him. They may have heard of Him. Indeed, this woman had heard of the Messiah, but she didn't know Him. And here we have a sanctuary of people, the overwhelming majority of whom profess to know Jesus. And we have a world of lost people, many of whom their only knowledge of Jesus is what they remember from a childhood of stories, if that. And they don't know Jesus. They barely heard a thing about Him. They don't know the power of Jesus in the life of a person. They don't know the promise of Jesus. They don't know Him. Six, seven years ago, my wife and I started coaching at the local high school at National Trail. We were just coaching the only sport that they couldn't find anyone to coach, <laughs> track and field. We were coaching junior high track and field, and we start to get to know kids and families. Now, when I was a kid at National Trail, same school, same area, same community. Not all my friends, all the people that I knew at National Trail, they at least went to church on holidays. They at least were affiliated with some church, even if they didn't go throughout the year. It's not that anymore. It's not the case anymore. We start talking to 11, 12, 13-year-olds. Never been to church a day in their lives. They don't know anything about Jesus. He's a name. He's a caricature. He's someone mocked in cartoons. Someone ridiculed in media. He's no more real to them than the Easter Bunny. They don't know Jesus. That should strike you. Say, well, I don't talk about Jesus. The people that I talk to know Jesus. No, they don't. No, they don't. They know a caricature of the Lord. They don't know the Lord. If they did, they would ask of Him and He would give them living waters. Now the word living waters there is a remarkable thing. And it fits the theme of what we're doing during this Advent time. Living waters. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet of God uses this phrase, living waters, to describe the blessings of Yahweh. Now listen to this. This is the Lord talking through the prophet Jeremiah. My people have forsaken me, the fountain, the fountain of living waters. My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, God's condemnation of Israel is that His people had forsaken Him. He was a fountain of living waters. A fountain, not a well, not something that you, you throw the bucket in and you hope there's still water left. Not a cistern that would be depleted. A fountain. My people have forsaken a fountain of life-giving water and instead have built for themselves cisterns, basins, holding tanks, and in fact broken holding tanks that cannot even hold the water of life and so what's the result they go to these cisterns one day and they expect to be able to draw something of power and meaning and they're totally empty that's how God describes Israel's rejection of him my people have forsaken fountains of living waters and exchanged their devotion to me for these other things that they have placed their hope and their faith in which are no more than cracked bowls and they think they're going to go back to these bowls year after year, decade after decade, and find anything in them to help them. They won't. They won't. Now, when God, when Yahweh uses this definition of Himself as a fountain of living waters in the Old Testament, it's fairly unique, and it is no coincidence that Jesus here 
is saying he has the power to give living waters. He is identifying himself. Though this Samaritan woman has no clue what it is. As the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Listen to this prophecy from Revelation 7.17. The lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them unto fountains of waters of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's identifying himself as Messiah. He's identifying himself as the only source of life. He's identifying himself as the promised source of eternal life. From Zechariah 14.8 in description of the eternal kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is described as a place of living waters flowing freely. This woman doesn't have any clue. She says in verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. It's a hundred feet deep today, probably deeper then. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Does this sound familiar? It'll be the same resistance that the Jews have about Jesus. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And what does Jesus tell them before Abraham was, I am? They try to stone him for that. Same question here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? If she only knew. That's what Jesus means. If you knew. If you only knew. <laughs> this light has come into the world and the world did not know him. All things were made through him and the world did not know him. Jesus responds very patiently. Verse 13. He answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Every once in a while... I'll hear some misguided Christian get a little mixed up in their theology and say, well, we shouldn't be Christians to have eternal life. <laughs> we should be Christians because we recognize, you know, God's love for us and the sacrament. We shouldn't be in it just to get to heaven. I say, I'm not sure you've read the Gospels. <laughs> Jesus came to defeat death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which we are on the verge of in our study in 1 Corinthians, that if there be no resurrection from the dead, we are of all people the most pitiable. We're serving a God who will not give us everlasting life. Jesus doesn't mince words about it here. He brings the carrot at the end of the stick out right away. Whoever I give water to, it will be a fountain of water of life flowing up, springing up inside of them even into everlasting life. <laughs> Verse 15. I, I don't know if it's with a hint of, of, of sarcasm, but the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She was tired of this burden. She might have been tired of life. We don't know much about her in verse 15, but we're about ready to learn an awful lot. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Repent and be saved! <laughs> no, he does, but in a roundabout way. In order to repent, we have to be confronted about our sin, right? Well, Jesus is going to draw that to a head. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. He's going to give her everlasting life. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. She was willing to leave it at that. I am single. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. None of your sin is disguised before the Lord? Don't you have to recognize that before you can trust Him for forgiveness? 
anybody who thinks that they have some sin in their life that is not going to be called into account, that will not be brought into the surface, the shame of which will be cutely tucked away behind the curtains, never to be revealed. Anybody who's mustering that inside of themselves and doesn't realize that they are bare and destitute and naked before the eyes of the Almighty God is not ready for forgiveness. We think, what a harsh thing Jesus has done. He's talking about divorce with a woman who's been divorced five times. He's talking about adultery with a woman who's living in adultery. After all, she's a Samaritan. Uh, she doesn't know any better. Oh, yes, she does. Just like you knew better before you were a Christian too. You may not know all there is to know about good and evil before you're a Christian, but you know enough to know, I'm not good. And in order to convince yourself you are good, it takes an awful lot of legal justification because one thing every person learns in life pretty fast. I am bad. I can be bad. I've done bad things. If you want e eternal life, let's talk about your condition, Jesus says. Now the woman, very coyly, I think in verse 9 says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> she had no previous experience with this man who just called her on the carpet, but it's still an individual discussion. It's not as if Jesus is preaching to the mountains about this woman's evil. He's talking one-on-one -on -one to her. So all people who would preach the message of Jesus Christ must deal with those who they would lead to salvation and their sin privately, personally, but directly. Oh, I'm ready to get saved. That's good news. But have you thought about your sin? I'm ready to have eternal life. I don't want to go to hell when I die. That's good news. Have you confronted your sin? Do you realize the obstacle between you and eternal life? And Jesus just lays it out for the woman to see. Here's the problem. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain... And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now some people would look at the woman and say, well, she is kind of sidetracking the conversation here with a theological question. But that's to miss the fact that there is a genuine, real theological question that the Samaritans and the Jewish people disagreed with here. Now Jesus has just revealed himself as no mere man to the woman because he didn't know this stuff about her and yet he's talking very plainly with her. In fact, he's gone beyond that as far as to say, I can offer you everlasting life. And the woman brings to Jesus now the chief theological question, the chief theological dispute between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Mainly that Samaria and the Samaritans had embraced the first five books of the Bible, but had not gone beyond that through the rest of the Old Testament. They had instead invented their own religion and their own ideas based on those first five books of the Bible. And so they had created their own temple up on a mountain, which you can see from where Jacob's well is, but that temple had been knocked down and was no longer standing. So the Samaritans had a saying that on this mountain is where we will go to worship the one true God. The Jews say, well, the temple is in Jerusalem. That's where we'll go to worship the one true God. And she turns to this prophet and says, tell me who's right. After all, if someone would have eternal life, they should know which God and where they're going to be worshiping. Right? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The end destination for your worship, for true worship, is not in a building in Jerusalem or up on your mountain. That's the first theological thing. There is something more meaningful to worship than the locale, than your presence. There is something more meaningful to worship than a building or even traditions. Second thing he says, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritans are wrong. The Old Testament in all of its fullness is from God. The prophets of the Old Testament are from God. You're trying to worship a God from the first five books of the Bible that you do not know because you've been in rejection of all the prophets that have come since. Samaritans are wrong. Point number two, we know what we worship. 
For salvation is of the Jews. Israel's right. Israel's right in embracing the prophets and waiting for the Messiah. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not merely in flesh and bone, but in spirit. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is talking about spirit in the essence of who you are. In other words, it will not be the locale. It won't be true worshipers will worship in this building or true worshipers will worship in this building. True worshipers will worship in this temple. In spirit and in truth. And it should echo in the mind of those of us who have read the book, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In other words, true worshipers will worship in spirit because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Because they have approached the Father, the one God, not through a building, not through a priest, but through the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, this woman can't put all that together here, but Jesus lays it out anyway. And then what a statement comes next. Just think about this statement here. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. That is amazing. Why is Jesus... Why? Let's, let's, let's not use the name. Let's use another... Let's use the title. Why is the one and only beloved Son of God, through whom everything in the universe was made, sitting beside a well in the middle of Samaria. Because the Father is seeking true worshipers. Why is He in Zacchaeus the tax collector's house? Why is He in a manger in Bethlehem? Why is He on a hill feeding thousands? Why is he in a boat going across the sea? Why is he on a cross? Because the Father is seeking true worshipers. And for worship to move from buildings and temples to the Spirit of God inside of a man or a woman, there must be a reconciliation take place. And this Jesus is that reconciliation I don't know why, I won't speak for you, I don't know why God would want me as a worshiper. Beyond the basic reality that it would seem the God of all the universe would want everyone to worship Him, I don't know why He would be seeking me. But He has. And I am. Is that you today? Are you a worshiper of the one true God? What does that worship look like in your life? What does true worship look like in your life? How do you glorify and extol the God of the universe to a world that does not know Him? The Father is seeking and to this day seeks true worshipers. And how many people have you given up on saying they're never going to come around? Here's a woman divorced five times living in adultery and Jesus is preaching the gospel to her beside a well in Samaria. Verse 24, For God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What boldness, what honesty, what confrontation. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the message of Jesus. You're a sinner. Every one of you. <laughs> you would have eternal life, but for your sin. 
It's the obstacle. Oh, give me this living water. Okay? Here's your sin. God is seeking true worshipers. And He is making a way in Jesus for sinners to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that way is the person of Jesus Christ. And this woman ends, well, I know that the Christ, the Messiah, is coming at some point. And Jesus says, I who you speak with am He. This is the coming of Jesus and the miracle of it. And this is why anyone in this room is saved today. Because Jesus Christ came and preached this message and He commissioned His disciples to preach that message. And 2,000 years ago they started preaching that message. And 1,500 years ago they were still preaching this message. And 1,000 years ago they were still preaching this message. And 500 and 200 and 150 and 10 and 20. A few years ago, the followers of Jesus Christ were still telling people who did not know Jesus who Jesus was. We're still telling people who are going to die in their sin and spend eternity in hell that they could have eternal life. That is the only reason you're here. And you have a commission as a follower of Jesus Christ. Not merely for your friends and family, but for the world. For a world that doesn't even exist yet. For a world a hundred years from now. For a world two hundred years from now. For an everlasting kingdom of God in heaven. You have a commission. To tell a people who do not know the light that has come into the world. About the light that has come into the world. And to tell them again and again and again. And that's why I admire people like Don. People like my father. Who are perfectly content never to have a massive media empire. Never to have a million Twitter followers. Never to be nationally published, you know, Christian writers. Never to produce movies and great media events. But I admire those people who are content to spend their lives as best they can telling people about a Jesus that they do not know. I'd like to admire everyone in the room the same way for that. That's what Jesus did. That's what He has called us to. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, when I think of the boldness of Jesus, even speaking these things, knowing the rejection that is coming to Him, knowing the sacrifice that He'll have to make, understanding the the meekness that he will have to display, the Son of God who can command angels will have to merely take the vengeance, the torture, the devices of man. I feel the coward. And Father, I pray that you'll give us not a spirit of fear, but of boldness, of power, of love, of a sound mind to tell people who do not know your Son Jesus Christ who He is, what He promises, what must be done, what will happen to them if it's not accomplished in their lives. Help us to be gentle, kind, gracious, all of these things, but faithful. Bless these tithes and offerings. Help them to go to the ministry of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.